The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. Getting your mind right. And that's what positional truth is. Get your mind right so you can have a right practice. Okay? You don't have any practical righteousness without positional righteousness. You don't have any practical sanctification without positional sanctification. You don't have any practical oh, just, uh, justification and righteousness. Same thing. But I'm speaking to the choir here. Um, so we were looking through these texts, and as we saw, I turned to 1 Corinthians 4, as we've stated. <clears throat> Some people think, Oh, this is the deeper things. This is not the deeper things. This is the most basic thing that every Christian should know. Is it deep? Yes, it's deep. But it's not some special truth that will teach you once you've proven that you're worthy. It's not some special truth that you have to prove how worthy you are, and then we're going to show you the secrets. This isn't that. This is for all Christians. So in 1 Corinthians 4... We read in verse 15, it says, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be imitators of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved child, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Okay? Now, my ways, very emphatic the way he says, states this, my very own ways, my ways. Okay, is Paul just being an egomaniac here? Would that be like, if I got up here, I'm going to teach you my theology. Wouldn't that be a little, like, Josh, you're an egomaniac. <laughs> you're, the, the lessons of Josh? You know? Now, that would be out of place for me to do that. But Paul was the steward of the dispensation of grace. Mm-hmm. He had been being groomed to be the leader of the Sanhedrin, and he was saved by Christ off the Damascus Road. He was trained personally by Christ for years in the desert. And he comes back, and he meets with the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They keep him no, nobody trusts him because he just had been killing the Christians and imprisoning the Christians. They send him up to, what are we going to do with this guy? What are we going to do with him? He's talking about things that we don't understand. But they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they sent him up to Tarsus. Let's bury this guy for a while. Because they didn't know what to do with him. I'm sure at the same time as Paul's coming around, there's, there's temporary spiritual gifts that are doing miraculous things. They're validating revelation. There's other gifts, but how are they putting it all together? I don't know. what We don't have that revelation, how that all worked. We have hints of what James says. James says some different things that, that, that uh, well, that truth did exist even that early. James was writing, and he talked about some of the things we know about as grace truth. Right? It's kind of interesting in light of what Tim taught today. No one blinks when you say the law of Moses. 
And having done that, you can now do acts of righteousness. That's verse 17. Having followed the do this doctrine, this, this is what it says, having, followed, having obeyed this doctrine, you are free to righteousness, I think is the words. I might have, that's the meaning. Let's just read it. Turn to Romans 6. You get in trouble when you do too much paraphrasing. Verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the slaves of righteousness. So you were set free. Christ said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Here he says, you are free from sin. So what set him free? The truth did, just like Christ prophesied. The truth said, what was the truth? What did they obey? That doctrine. What's the doctrine? Verse 11, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness unto God. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, what this communicates is that before this truth, you were a slave of sin. And as long as you set your mind to the things of the flesh, you are still a slave of sin. But when you set your mind to the things of the Spirit, when you count yourself dead to the sin nature and alive unto God, that authority of the sin nature is broken. You've broken those chains. Everybody know that popular song right now? This is when we break out that song if we were a modern church. Right? Breaking the chain. No, I don't sing it for you. You don't want to hear me sing that. Making a group. Making a group. Okay. Um, we are free we are free and that is a very major element of the truth is that um, you don't have what it takes to be free only God can give you that freedom but he's given you a doctrine that you need to obey you obey that and you will be free it's a promise So Paul taught this everywhere in every church. When you get to the book of Colossians, let's jump over there. We've seen it just permeating chapter 1. We've seen this permeating chapter 2, this idea of being in Christ. And we've already explained that the part, a big reason for this is that Paul had never met these believers in the book of Colossians. He never met them. This church had been started and developed by one of Paul's students. And he came from Ephesus and went over to Colossae. It's not very far. Check it out on the map. So, in the book of Colossians... You really have one of the most important passages in regard to positional truth because he actually explains how you relate to it. He actually explains it. 
Many other places, he just states it as a fact. This is true. You are this in Christ. You're that in Christ. But in Colossians 3, he actually tells you what to do with it. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Now that's kind of a, a funny thing to say. I don't know how many people really... Do we automatically take that in and understand what it's saying? I mean, since you're risen with Christ, how does a normal person take that when they read that? Do you immediately understand, oh, that God counts? No, I'm not really in Christ up in the right hand. I'm not really up there in heaven. I'm down here. But what is God saying about me? I think we just gloss over it and don't even. Yeah, I think it just sounds like fancy language for most people. Now, if you start asking questions, if the Spirit pricks you in your heart to ask questions, to I want to understand this, people can explain it, right? We, we, do, we look at other verses, we start explaining this to people. What does it mean to be risen with Christ? What does that mean? And if there's this metaphorical resurrection that we're part of, what about a physical resurrection, right? All those different things start, start opening other... How do I know when it's talking, right? Because I didn't really rise. But God counts me. What's the difference between logical reckoning and some something else? What is that talking about? So we have this idea of what is reckoning, and we go to Romans 4. We go to Romans 4 to explain reckoning. Jump over to Romans 4. Romans 4 is called the Reckoning chapter, the imputation chapter. Um, if you have a concordance, you could pull it open. The word for lagizomai or for reckoning occurs lots of times here. I don't know if I'll be able to pull it up real fast here. New Lambda. What's that? Yeah, it's a bunch of types. Um, then you get into the noun and the verb and all the different forms, and it might even be more than that. But um, let's see here. Pull it up here. It's chapter four, right? That's what I want. Yep, right there. That's what I want. Right there. Even have it headed right at the chapter four I've written in here. Imputation chapter. Highlight verse 17. Okay, so that's the key verse. Let's read verse 17 first. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom he believed, even God, who makes alive the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. Now, what happens if I do that? If I, if you come down to the store and you give me $10 and I say, nope, that's two, <laughs> is that effective? No, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. It's a fact that that is $10 and I said it was two. I'm jipping you out of $8. 
I'm a liar. But I'm not the God of the universe. God is right and is all his ways. And he calls things that be not as, as, the, as though they are. And it really is. You wrap your mind around that. Are you okay with saying God says something that's not true, but it is true because he says it? Are you okay with that? Is God sovereign? Is he the God of the universe? Are you able to accept that? Okay. A lot of people can't because they want to make themselves God. They want to make something in this world God. But there is a true God that's over everything. And when he says something, it is. That's imputation. That's imputation. So go back to verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were declared righteous by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Unto him that worketh this reward not reckoned of grace. So in verse 3 there you have the word, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It, what? The faith. His faith was counted unto him for righteousness. So Abraham looked at the stars, he said, I don't see stars, I see offspring. Because he believed God. God said, your offspring are going to be innumerable, like the stars. And Abraham believed God. And God said, finally, you did something right. You believe me, finally. Okay, we all know this is years and years, right? Years and years after God initially promised him personal promises. Now him, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So, when somebody comes to the store and works for me and I say I'll pay you this wage I don't at the end of the time say look at how wonderful I am I'm paying you I'm paying you so much I'm such a gracious person no we agreed upon an amount and I owed you that for your services rendered okay. it's not logically reckoned it's a debt Everybody see that? But to him that worketh not, but believes on him that declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. So we set up here a situation. Now he states this in a way that he's saying this is true going beyond Abraham. So he's taking it beyond Abraham. Sometimes we like to read our lives into the Old Testament. We say, God told uh, Abraham, go forth and multiply. So I had to come with 20 kids, right? God told Noah to fill full of the earth. So I'm having 30 kids, you know? You mean Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, right? I just realized something that I never noticed before. You showed us that verse of in 17 of God giving life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And then he gives the example 
down in verse 20, which I've always read that verse in 20 and thinking, boy, God sure ignored what he was doing. But that is an example of that calling into a being that which does not exist. Things that be not as though they were. When he says, uh, yet with the... Uh, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I mean, he wavered quite a bit. Yeah. Yep. God was gracious even with, with Abraham. And we point to that one moment. That's what scripture points to. That one act of faith that Abraham has. Um, So verse 5, but to him that works not, but believes on him that declares righteous to ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. So we have reckoned now in verse 3, we have it in verse 4, we have it in verse 5. We're gonna, is it going to be in verse 6? Mm -hmm. Yep. Even as David also described the happiness of the man who unto whom God reckons or imputes righteousness without works. Without words. Saying, happy are they whose lawlessnesses are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Whose lawlessnesses are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Wow. Cometh this happiness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. So this is pointing out that getting circumcised is not what brought Abraham blessing. Righteousness. Or righteousness. It was his faith. It was his faith. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So he got this imputed again. Okay. So you drop all the way down to verse 17. And again, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who makes alive the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were, as being, as existing. So this is the definition of imputation. You don't have the word imputation in this verse. Some people miss this. But this is the biblical definition of imputation. It is the biblical definition of, rec of reckoning. When it tells us we are to set our minds on things, we're to logically reckon. This is what it is. We're to call something that isn't as though it is. And we go to other places and we're to direct our faith at this position and at this person that we're in. We direct our faith at it. We're to logically reckon it. And then there's promises related to that. And we direct faith at it. We logically reckon it to be true, and then there's promises related to if we do that. 
So we logically rack it, and we can direct faith at the person and the position. Let's go back to Colossians. So we come back. And last week we were looking at this idea of the fact that in Christ, in verse 9, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, I did, we were going through the spirit beings and all that, and how Christ is still over all that, even in the, His glorified, resurrected humanity. It's not like as deity He's above it, and now that He's attached to a human being, He is somehow always less than them in the creative scale. Nope! Nope! Becoming a man, he is, being having been glorified, he is still over all of that. Everything. That is an amazing thought. That is an amazing thought. But that is communicated to us for the purpose of showing us, us being in him, we lack nothing. We are in the Son. Now that that's even all of that is not even it's begging the question of the fact that we are also in the Father. Okay? Which is then a whole other thing. But we are in the Son, and if we're in the Son who is over all principalities and powers, then we also have no lack. We have been made the fullness. We're not, he is not holding anything back of what we are meant to be. Now, in this life, in normal human progression, that is necessary um, to hold back. Do you, you have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, four-year-old, whatever stage of development a child is, and you give them everything that they're going to need to be an adult? <laughs> it's laughable. It's laughable. You give them what's appropriate for that stage of maturity, and if they handle it, then you give them the next thing. I don't, I don't hand those keys over to a, a three-year-old. People always around here they want to say, "Oh, I was driving a tractor before I could walk." You know? Okay, that's true to some extent. I was riding a horse before I could walk. You know? And maybe that's true. Okay? But put the illustration. You know, just go along with me, okay? And listen to the illustration. The illustration is. And I think we all can agree, even if we have some circumstance we can relate to that is, goes against the illustration. <laughs> you don't, in this life, you do hold back things for some, from somebody until they are ready for it. When they're ready, then you dull out the next piece of information, the next tool, or whatever. If you're over them, in authority, or as a parent, or whatever the issue is. As a Christian, we are directly related to our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, and Christ. And there is no intermediary that we have to go through. From day one, from day one, we are in Christ, lacking nothing. Positionally, let's make that clear, positionally. Okay. Now, what kind of things does that combat against? Somebody that has a low self-esteem, right? 
to crashing your self-esteem. And also, um, what's the other word? The opposite of that would be high self-esteem. High self-esteem. Or hyper self-esteem, yeah. overconfidence. Um, all those things, it can balance all that. It can balance all of that. Um, you see a lot of people that, you know, people always talk about, they need a high, and there, you see people with low self-esteem and it hinders them. And then you get the world's viewpoint, which is, you just need to tell them how they're a winner. You're unique. You're a unicorn. <laughs> you're a unicorn. There's nobody like you. You're like a mermaid. You know? You're amazing. Right? You're a supernatural fictional creature. There's nobody like you. Okay. Psychology calls that positive self-talk. Yeah, positive self-talk. That's what they call it, actually. Yeah. Positive self-talk. Uh, now, the correct, yes, people need to have a good self-esteem, but what does it come from? It comes from seeing who you are in Christ. It's called Christ-esteem. It's not saying, I'm a good person. I'm not a good person. I'm a sinner. I am a filthy, no-good sinner. And not, I'm not trying to make myself worse than you. I'm equally bad to you. Okay? <laughs> And hopefully you think yourself is pretty good, because that makes me good. No. <laughs> the point is, we're all, the man's heart is deceitfully wicked, and if you let the sin nature go, it never leaves it stagnant. The sin nature will never allow you to stagnate. It will take a little bit more. If you, if you revel in one little realm of the sin nature, the sin nature what can we? I'm bored now. That was fun for a minute, but I'm bored. What else can we do? You know? And uh, that's the deceitfulness of the sin nature. And it will take you, you know, from here to here to here to all of a sudden, where? I don't even recognize myself anymore. Okay? But instead of, and you can have a really bad self esteem after that, <laughs> and you should. You should feel horrible about what's going on in your life. And that's part, part of the uh, grieving of the Spirit. I didn't. I can do so much better than this. I don't need to be like this. And that's part of the grieving work of the Holy Spirit. But instead of positive self-esteem, we need to call it Christ-esteem. You need to get your mind on what God has made you. Who you are in Christ. That is what brings a positive image. That's the correct self-talk. Is what does God say about me in Christ? And I need to say what he says. So, understanding that we have not been shortchanged. We have not been... Uh, I don't care how privileged this world says you are. <laughs> That's the most current thing going on right now, right? If you're in certain groups, then you're not privileged. And if you're of other groups, you're super privileged. Well, I'll tell you what. As far as humanity, we're all in the same place. We're condemned to hell. Okay, not one person has an advantage over another. We're all in the same place. We all have the same bodily functions that are disgusting. We all I haven't seen anybody that gets up in the morning and their pants come on all both legs at the same time. Everybody has to put one leg on one leg at a time, right? Has anybody, have you ever fallen over trying to put your pants on? You know, that's pretty embarrassing. Thank God we keep the door shut when we get dressed, right? <laughs> but you're going to put your pants on. Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. I don't have no privilege. You don't have no privilege. Nobody helped me put them on. Maybe as a little kid, somebody helped me put them on. But when I get up in the morning, I have to put my own pants on. I'm not privileged. 
I go through the same struggles and problems of any other person. Everybody's problems might be different, but we all go through troubles. When you're a Christian, you have hope. You have hope. You're complete in Him. He's the head over all principality and power. Verse 11. Now, at first we didn't, we hit it. Actually, we're going to hit it here in verse 15, so I won't bring it up yet. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of the Christ. No. Are we still in Romans? No, we're in Colossians 2, verse 11. I'm uh, sorry. Three. Colossians 2. Oh, two. I referred to three, and then we're going back to two. I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't say that. Oops. I'm just trying to. I did that on purpose just to help you out, Tim. You're not the only one. Thank you. I was being facetious there. I'm going to get that. I really did make a mistake there. Um, Some people kind of admit they made a mistake. I have no problem admitting I make a mistake. In fact, I think I've said this before. At work, when somebody, uh, like a vendor comes in and is new and will drop the pallet, and I say, that's perfect. But just to let you know, you don't want to be too perfect. You know what happened to the last guy that was perfect? And they're like, what? What? Yeah, you ever heard of Jesus? What they do to him? And they're like, oh, yeah, he was, yeah no doubt, man, no doubt. And then I, then I end it with, that's why I always do something wrong every day on purpose. Because <laughs> I don't want to be crucified. <laughs> you always like that part. You always like that part. Um, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of the Christ. Now, if you really wrap your mind around what this is talking about, if you don't understand reckoning, first of all, you're going to get a lot of weird ideas about this. So you better get your mind, you better understand what reckoning is. Okay. Number one, this is talking about all Christians. So you got to ask yourself, okay, how are we circumcised? We all understand what the right of circumcision was. It would take the male foreskin of a young boy in the eighth day and cut off that skin. Okay. And you hope that's a sharp knife because I'm sure there was times where people made mistakes, right? And we can laugh about it. It's, you know, that's, but it's not funny the person that it happened to. And the actual event wasn't fun. You know, the child's in pain. Oh, they won't remember it later, right? But uh, at the time, they know about it. And until it heals, it's painful. Every time they go to the bathroom, it's going to be painful. Now, but we all understand that that procedure. We all understand what that is. Okay. Abraham was told to go through it. Then it was instituted in the law as part of the third Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign to show that you were part of the covenant people. And if you didn't have the sign, you're to be cut off. It answers the question, who gets the land in time? Those that are circumcised. You know, you're circumcised? Okay. And they didn't kick you out of the land. They killed you. 
You were to be cut off from the people, and that meant killed. Right? So whether you were part of the household, you would do, do it too, even if you weren't a Jew. You were expected to get circumcised. Now, this is an interesting imagery when you bring it into Christianity. Because they understood, oh, we're not talking. They understood the difference. They understood this is a without hands circumcision. Well, that's impossible. First of all, if you're going to circumcise, I want a sharp knife, and I want somebody with a very steady hand. Right? Not a flying knife. We don't want no flying knife. We don't want, you know, we don't want no magic guy trying to do this. I want to see his hand. I want to see that. I don't want. <laughs> oh, doctor. Oh, he's the best ever. You sure? <laughs> right? Now, I, I'm making light of this, but they understood this. They understood this. We don't understand this so much. Okay? But they lived with this right, not just as a a uh, something to promote cleanliness so young, young boys that don't know how to clean themselves when they're 14 or whatever. But they understood it as a sign of the covenant for the third Abrahamic covenant. It was very important. So when it talks about this, we're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and they're putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of the Christ. But it's not a sign of the third Abrahamic covenant to get the land. Because we're not a people of land. As Paul communicates in the next book, which he wrote in the same period as he wrote this one, in the book of Philippians, what does he say about us? That we're citizens of the heavens, not of land. So what are we getting circumcised here for? What is the spiritual circumcision that has nothing to do with land? What is it? It's from this body of sin. In Christ, this sin nature, I, God does not see me with the sin nature in Christ. That's cut off. Okay? To, be, to put it bluntly, we're all adults here. In Christ... A female does not have a male member. But, it, but every human being has a sin nature. And male and female have this member cut off. But it's not talking about male or female. It's talking about Christians. And in Christ, we have no sin nature. And if you don't understand imputation... You're not going to understand that statement. You're going to take me completely wrong. I didn't say you don't have a sin nature. I said in Christ, you don't have a sin nature. And there is a difference. We have a sin nature down here on this earth. But in Christ, I have no sin nature because of this circumcision. Okay. Okay. I have a question. And now, I know that in the original language it says by the circumcision of the Christ. Mm -hmm. If someone doesn't believe, they believe that's just circumcision of Christ, mm -hmm. how would that alter this 
it's not going to alternate the change the meaning of the text. So I wouldn't make that a point of argument. I do think it should be interpreted as the Christ here because the terminology the Christ is important in this book specifically in the context, and then also the doctrine of the Christ revealed in two fifteen where Jew and Gentile um, are made. There's peace made in one. Okay. And I think it's related to this in this context. So, so no, it wouldn't change the meaning of the text here if somebody doesn't see um, the Christ here. Uh, but I'm not going to argue. But interpretively, I would say yes, it is the Christ here. Well, wouldn't they be saying by the circumcision of Christ, wouldn't they be talking about Christ's circumcision instead of the bodies, but, but the, when you say the circumcision belonging to, you could say it's the circumcision belonging to Christ, meaning that because you're in oh, Him, you have that circumcision. I see. It could be the circumcision of the character of that. So there's lots of different ways that can be when you explain it out. I see. But it's only one. And when I say of the Christ, you can see when He goes to verse twelve. It goes back to the the, the singular masculine uh, pronoun him. So whether you say it's Christ, it still is him as the head of the body. You know, and now you're in him and you're buried. So again, I'm not going to argue with somebody over it. You can go through all the examples of the Christ and Christ and see how this play between the Christ and him as the head of. When it says the Christ, he's still involved, no matter how you look at it. Because that's why it's titled the Christ is because he's the head and you're identified it's the whole thing is identified by the head okay? if uh, um, you know me by my face right if my arm was cut off and thrown down the side of the road you wouldn't oh you wouldn't say oh that's Josh right but if because you wouldn't be able to identify my arm and now the scientists might be able to, and the doctor might be able to. Yes, I have a tattoo right here. You'd be able to identify that. <laughs> and, uh, but you see what I'm saying, though? Mm -hmm. We identify somebody by their face, right? By the head. Now, then you want to get into technicalities. When we talk head, it's the brain. Christ is the yeah, Anyway. Buried with him by baptism. Buried with him, co-buried literally, with him by baptism. Now, you don't realize this that when it says co, when we say co-buried, um, this is like doubling up. It makes it extremely emphatic. Um, it's interesting. Stanton's learning a lot of this in Spanish because, uh, just like Greek, Spanish has a lot of things that where the uh, the person is included in the verb, right? So when you use a personal pronoun or other things, often it brings even more emphasis, right? Now, here, the way this emphasis is brought, it's not being brought exactly the same, but you have uh, co-buried with him. And the uh, him is in the lid case. So uh, you have co-buried with him. So you have the soon is attached to the buried. Soon is the with, co-buried, with buried, together buried. We're buried with him. 
okay? It makes it extremely strong. We're buried with him. That's kind of a very, a, uh, I don't know what the right, it's a very abstract concept. Again, something that's true that's not true. Yeah. I mean, you know. That's what imputation is. God's eyes. I did not get buried with Christ. I was, there was no dirt on my face. I got no dirt in my eyes. It was a tomb. Okay. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, none of that. None of that. And it happened 2,000 years ago. I didn't even exist. But it's the same as the fact that we ate of the fruit the same time Adam ate the fruit. When he sinned, we all sinned. We all would have done the same thing. God counts, you know, it's not hard to think about really when it comes to Adam. You don't go, okay, a perfect human being with no flaws, and he ate and sinned. But he's going to have progeny that are going to do better than him. Is that logical? It's no. not logical. No, because they're not better, because they're worse. They're worse. Right? You're not going to get better. It was interesting. We're uh, down in Cannon Beach yesterday, and we go into this glass blowing shop. And the guy's blowing. The wife has got her uh, blowtorch. The husband's moving this, this beautiful vase into the, the furnace. And then they pull it out. And they hold it, and the wife turns, he goes, and she, with the blowtorch, and he has his little thing that's flat to really smooth the outer rim of that, and then, of course, McLean starts asking questions, and it's just great. Uh, I don't know what McLean said, but this guy starts going on and on about the universe, and, and, uh, and is McLean the person to talk to about this? <laughs> no. I don't know if you know McLean very well. But he can get very intellectual very quickly. And uh, but McLean was very polite. You know. The guy goes into intelligent, uh, intelligent whatever, uh, creation. And he goes, well, I don't believe in uh, intelligent design. I believe in randomness. Randomness? Yeah, random something, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> I'm getting triggered right now. We better turn the other direction. And uh, you're just going, okay, you're, you call yourself, you're just amazed by creation, and this is the conclusion you came to. And that's the darkness of humanity that God allows, right? They're darkened. Their minds are darkened. They can't see the cause of it all. And it was interesting, over on another spot, he had this little thing in, in 2000, whatever, I was in Mexico, New Mexico or something, and I was dealing with the death of my mother, and I was in depression and addiction, and later asked me about my travels with ayahuasca, some, it's a transcendental, or I don't know, uh, drug, right? And, uh, it's just, you're just going, oh my goodness, right? And just the lostness of humanity, the hopelessness of humanity. There is a God in this universe that planned it all, and here you are, the little creation, 
and he has provided all the answers for your lost estate. But you just say, I don't want to see. I don't want to know about it. I hear nothing. I see nothing. I will come up with my own conclusions. But I think it's amazing that someone like that that creates beautiful pieces of art, art thinks it's random. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're focusing on the nature and all these different things, and they still don't see it. All right, I'm sorry to get off on that one, but it was just a random thing. Buried with him by baptism. We were buried with him. How? By baptism. What baptism? Holy Spirit baptism. The Holy Spirit places into Christ, and having been united to Christ in him at the Father's right hand, we are counted to have participated in that burial. Wherein also we are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Okay. So how were we raised? How did that happen? Well, how do we join into this? How do we get counted to be united to this event? It's when we believe the gospel. The Father gives us faith. That's talking about the gift of faith. That's the faith the Father gives. He gives us the gift of faith. It's through the operation of God, the one who raised him out from the dead. Now, if we looked at other places, we would find out the Son raised himself, the Holy Spirit raised him, but each person of the Godhead had a part in the resurrection of Christ. And we had a part. We raised with him. Okay? And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We were dead because of that. Because we were uncircumcised. We were dead because of the uncircumcised. We still had a sin. We were dead because of the sin nature. But now we're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see that? He's made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, to his cross. Now, this is where I remember I said we were talking about the new creation. This lines up really nicely with Ephesians 2.15. That's what that's the, the re, it's like these, these passages are parallel. It's like the verses are read them together. Okay. Verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Now, this idea of spoiling. Okay. Spoiling, verse 15, putting off the rulers and the authorities. Okay. So in the passive, this idea of putting off has the idea to be spoiled, to take away a booty, or to beat up, to put off. Um, it's quite, you know, when he, when it, when it, the way this reads, um, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them. He exposed them. He made a show of them. He exposed them openly with boldness, triumphing over them in it. I'll tell you right now, the namby-pambies today in professional football, (laughs) they would have called a penalty on Christ. I don't mind when they do an amazing play and they jump up and go, yeah, that's playing to your crowd, right? That's part of the fun. 
I haven't played it down my whole senior year. And now I get to go in and boom, I have an awesome play. I get to jump up and say, hey, why didn't you play me more? <laughs> right? I, uh, I'm getting on my soapbox now. <laughs> Christ upon, you know, think about it. Think about it. The creation of the universe. Remember what it says over in Peter? Before the foundation of the world, he was known as a lamb slain. He was before the foundation. He was known as a lamb. This was a drama that was laid out. It was laid out. It was written in books. Why? So God would forget the, the plan? No. So he could have the spirit beings come and look at it and go, this is what I'm going to do. And I don't know if Satan got to read those books too. I bet he does. Read it all. It's an open book. Read it all. It's try to stop me. And all you spirit beings on the right, pay attention. I'm giving him, letting him have his best chance. I'm getting, it's an open book. Read it all. Read it all. Okay. It doesn't matter what Satan does. Christ comes out on top. You can't stop this guy. There was a, a rock song there back when I was in high school. I don't, I don't remember who did it, but rock Christian, Christian rock, right? And it was, you can't keep a good man down. And it's about the resurrection of Christ. Um, but that day that Christ was put on the cross, Satan thought he was winning. He thought he was winning. He was working in all the levers of government to make that happen. All the people that were decision makers were in agreement to get rid of this man. And Satan was behind it. He was even in the midst of his close circle. He was with Judas, moving Judas to betray Christ. Can you think of a scheme that's more, more controlled than that? And so upon Christ going, he wrote, you remember in Peter, when it says that, well, let's look over in Peter, 1 Peter 3. Is it 1 Peter 3 or 2 Peter 3? Yeah, 1 Peter 3. We didn't emphasize this last week, but I do want to emphasize it now. For Christ, who had once suffered for sins, verse 18, 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also had once suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay? Now, this next phrase, it's a mende construction. Everybody remember what a mende construction is? Tim's talked about this. Men. On the one hand, this, but on the other hand, this. Okay? So on the one hand, on the one hand, being put to death in the flesh. What is that? That's his physical death. But being made alive in the spirit. So what this puts is, he died spiritually first, right? So he's dead, he's alive physically, but he's dead spiritually. And that lines up with the story in the Gospels, doesn't it? There was three hours of darkness, and then what did Christ say? It is, it finished. is finished. 
I thirst. All those different phrases. He came back alive spiritually. That darkness ended, but he died physically. Get it? He was made alive in spirit. I, talk, I believe that's the human's smallest. In his human spirit, he was made alive. So there was two deaths. Two deaths. Not one death. Two deaths. A physical death and a spiritual death. Verse 19. In which, indeed, also he went and preached. And this word preach has the idea of an official announcement. He preached unto the spirits in prison. The spirits in prison. Now, last week we talked about that, and we showed you all these different passages that line up. So these are some of the spirit beings that disobeyed God. They were of the group of spirit beings that followed Satan, and they are a group of, from those that disobeyed even more and left their way of habitation and took on a flesh. Okay? And cohabitated with human beings and other flesh. Now go back to Colossians. Now this trip, when it says he, where were these? It tells us in these passages that they were in Tartarus. They were confined in hell. Okay, so Christ went to Hell. Now some people go, Arr! right? What's that? What? Right. They'll get all they'll get all upset about that. He went to. That's how people understand okay. it. Right? I'm saying it how our people today understand it. Christ went to hell. They get all upset. Right. He went. Now you got to remember the Old Testament taught that all. People, when they died, went to the center of the earth. Some went to a place of torment, and some people went to a place of rest. And they could see each other. The people in torment could actually communicate, right? Remember, that's communicated in Luke 16. It's never said to be a parable. It is a real event that is being spoken about. And there is those suffering and those at rest. So believers in the Old Testament went to Sheol. There was different compartments, place of rest, place of torments. And we find out about another compartment where there's spirit beings that are locked down there. Right? And there are these ones that disobeyed God by leaving their way of habitation. And as I said before, I believe it is a direct assault on that promise in the book of Genesis that the woman, the seed of the woman would do a death blow to the head of the serpent, but the serpent would only do a minor wound to the seed of the woman. I don't believe it has anything to do with angels wanting to get in bodies or any of that. Okay. And I think part of this is seen in the fact that Jesus, upon going down there, he 
has a, he makes a show of them openly, and he triumphs over them in it. He went down there and he says, there was a plan for me to become a man. I became a man. You tried to stop it. Herod tried to kill off all the babies. All along the line, you tried to stop it. You tried to get me to do things, do things I could do as God. But according to Satan's instruction, instead of the Father's instruction, remember that? He was tempted in the wilderness. Never did Christ sin. Never did he do anything that wasn't part of the Father's will. All along the line, demons are opposing. All along the line, the Pharisees are opposing. All along the line, you just go over and over and over. And Satan was trying to foil God's plan all along. But in the end, what happened? He makes them an embarrassment. He makes them an embarrassment. All that you tried to do back there? How long have you been in jail now? How long have you been in jail now? You didn't stop me. Here I am. Fulfilling the plan. Fulfilling the plan. In fact, you helped to achieve it. Wow. Wow. God, you are God's tool. You are not God. You are not God. I think that's what the state, that's, that's my interpretation of what's going on here. It's a, it's, a, it's a little hammering in the nail that says, I am God. I am God. I am still, even though I became a man, even though I, this is right after he dies from the sins of the world, folks. Having been made alive in the spirit, he dies physically. And he spends how many days in the heart of the earth? As promised, right? This isn't a 30-second triumph show. Think about that. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. All right. Pretty awesome. All right. You got. You got to think of some of the huge displays of triumph that they have after ball games and stuff over a ball game. <laughs> well, let's take it a little step farther. This word is a Greek word, right? It's written in Roman times. This is the word, this triumph word, is the word used of the Roman consuls when they come back from a conquering, you know, some new area. And they come back into Rome and they have a huge parade that deifies that Roman consul, right? And they come through and it's just a celebration of victory. And the whole nation, the whole, all of Rome, comes out to see the spectacle. You can read about it in history. That's this word. Triumph. It's a parade of triumph. That's whose team I'm on. So let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that we are in Christ. Without Christ, we are nothing. But uh, in Christ... We are what you have made us to be. 
And so, Father, we thank you for that.